Hello and welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs, leaders, and creators despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have actually a unique guest that has been an entrepreneur all her life. Claudia Chan is the founder of the She Summit and also author of This Is How We Rise, Reach Your Highest Potential, Empower Women, Lead Change in the World. It was actually named by CNBC as Top Career Book of 2018. And Claudia has a lot of other accolades, and we're going to dig into your story and how you were able to persevere all these years as an entrepreneur. But I actually wanted to start on a slightly different note, because we have something in common. I read recently that your father was a big inspiration for you. He passed away. Uh, when did he pass away? About two, three years ago. Three years ago. So my father actually also passed away about three years ago. But he was also a massive inspiration for us. And what I wanted to learn from you is what was your relationship like with your father? But also, how do you live up to maybe some of the expectations that were set when you were growing up or even the role model that he may have been? Because that's what Sergey and I think about all the time with respect to our father. We literally think about him every day in terms of our creative pursuits. So how has he influenced you in that capacity? I love that question. Thank you for starting this episode with that. So when my dad passed, it was interesting because my brother and I were writing our speech and to honor him. And in doing so, I, I recognized that describing his character, you know, and what he stood for, and really how do we honor his legacy and how do we celebrate his life? Of course, I, we started reflecting on, you know, what are the choices that I am making and my brother is making and how I'm raising my kids and um, that at the end of my life, how are people going to talk about me? And that's actually a big part of my book. And I know Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, starts off the book that way. Like, imagine it's your funeral and imagine people come and what do they have to say about you? And the last chapter of my book is that everything leads to character. And another thing that I, I talk about a lot is like how, how our schedule is less about what we get done and more about who we become. And so again, all of this leading up to like character and who we're becoming and life is so short and we forget that. Like we, we live every single day in a very reactionary to-do list kind of way. Oh, what do I need to get done today? It's like we're focused on the micro things versus like what are the bigger decisions that we're making every day to represent who I'm becoming and, and what my character is and the bigger impact I'm here to make. And so, you know, losing my dad really put that into perspective in a much more powerful way. And I was actually finishing writing my book. Mm. And literally the last chapter, I talk about losing him and his funeral and how everything leads to character and who we're becoming. And so I think that's one of the biggest blessings that came out of losing him. I think I was 43 or 42 at the time, just really getting me to look at my life in a different way and the impact that I wanted to have for my family, for humanity, for my business, for everybody that I touched, mm. um, but also to honor him and the Chan. My maiden name is Chan and really honor the Chan legacy. And I'm also very spiritual too. Um, I'm actually a Christian. And so I'm always connected to God and trying to root my work in a spiritual place. Because like typically if we're in a human place all the time, we get very ego oriented. We start caring so much about what people think about us or are we successful enough? Are we making enough money? And you know, we, we sort of like sort of lose sight of the bigger picture of what matters. And so I feel like I'm connected to him every single day and he supports my entrepreneurship. 
and really my life. I mean, I'm not just an entrepreneur. I'm a mother of two toddlers. I'm a wife. I'm a boss. I'm a leader to people. I've got lots of clients. And so there's a lot of humans out there that I can impact and influence every day. And so I feel like showing up every day, being connected to my father in heaven, to God is what definitely fuels my entrepreneurship and my, my leadership. If you think back to when you were first starting off as an entrepreneur, before we hit record, we were talking about how you feel like you always have been. You even had a side hustle before you were a full-time entrepreneur. But, you know, for a lot of immigrant families, ourselves included, and a lot of the immigrant students, let's say, that we meet at universities, their families come to America, they create these opportunities for them, and they feel like they owe their families to make a salary and have a decent job from the get-go. Did you ever feel that kind of pressure from your parents, or did you always feel the freedom to start something? And, and if you can go back to the first thing that you started, how did that come about? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think something that's not talked enough about, because so much of my work today is focused on, you know, as you mentioned, I started She Summit, which started off as a women's leadership conference, but then evolved into really a leadership organization helping companies with their diversity and inclusion initiatives. And so the fact that we all have our diversity, there's 7.6 billion people on the planet and there's only one you, and we all have the culture that we come from, the class that we come from, the gender, like we all have our diversity. And I think the immigration piece, America is a country of mutts, right? Or of transplants. And, you know, we all come from, you know, a lot of us are first generation or, or second, but I think that reconciling of like being raised in American culture, you know, whether it's a Russian family or, or a Chinese family or a Greek family, it's really hard to reconcile. My first reaction to that is my journey into who I am today. And I've learned not to resent in many ways because we all have those challenges with our parents and our cultures growing up. Like, wait, I'm American. Yeah, but you need to be more Chinese, uh, right? Whereas like today, I feel so grateful for what it gave me. But at the same time, learning like what I want to hold on to versus like what is truly who I am independent of my parents. For example, money and scarcity. That was a huge thing because my parents survived the civil war in China and fled to Taiwan. And so they lost everything. They came here with nothing, even though they were raised in families that had wealth, families of aristocracy. And so coming here, it was so much. I remember growing up, they were both entrepreneurs and they owned Chinese restaurants and they were like, like money, survival. You know, it was so much was focused on having financial security. And so I think that that's definitely something that through college and through entrepreneurship, my 20s, my 30s, even to my 40s, even today, how my relationship with money, I like, I'm still doing work around my relationship with money. And I realize so much of it is cultural, mm. right? So, but I, I've had a lot of personal growth around it and that my worth and my value is not money, <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes these things are, you know, on such a subconscious level, they can they can impact you from a cultural standpoint. And maybe for another family, it's about being I know some families like you literally, you know, Americans like you raise your kids, they they're independent, whereas like some cultures like you raise your kids and then they take care of you <laughs> like your parents become your children. Mm-hmm. Right. Or like there's other you know, or there's other expectations from a different culture that you feel like you might not be meeting. So I think that really owning our as we think about our identities and who we're becoming um, really defining, you know, the blessings that our heritage are, the, you know, from whether it's you're an immigrant family, whatever culture you're from is really, you know, a part of you that you're proud of versus like what you also need to separate from to really become the whole healthy, thriving person that you need to be. Hmm. I think that's that's a very long winded answer. And I didn't really answer your second question, which I have a habit of doing. <laughs> when I get passionate about talking. It's OK. Well, we always <laughs> dig in if we need to. But actually, I, I like what you said about 
even now you have to kind of keep an eye on your relationship, let's say to money, for example. I mean, it's something that me and Sergey, I don't know, work with, let's say, I don't want to say struggle with, because that's a negative way of looking at it, but work with as well, because we also grew up in a family of need. Our family had small businesses growing up. I mean, our dad put us to work at 11 years old. I feel like we had a pretty good, like we respect money for sure, but it was always ingrained in us that it's something that you have to make sure to prioritize because in this world, you do have to have money. And so it's something that we think about all the time as well. But I like the advice that you gave, which is, you have to learn to be true to your identity and sometimes separate away from that. Because if there's unhealthy parts of it, then maybe it's okay to work towards uh, resolving that or changing a relationship with it so that you can have a healthy relationship with it and let it be more productive for you as well. Right. And I think the shame or the guilt, Mm -hmm. that's the piece that we need to let go of, right? Is that you you feel like you're dishonoring your parent or you're not making them happy. But at the end of the day, like, you know, even even as a parent now, what the advice a lot of other parents give me is, it's not my job to raise my kids to be clones of me. Mm-hmm. Like they come into this world as separate souls and separate human beings. And my job is to guide them, not to tell them what they need to do or who they need to be. And I think that for all of us, we all have trauma. We all have stuff that we need to heal from, from our childhood that impacts on a very subconscious level or conscious level today, how we work, how we operate how we are in relationships and love to how we are professionally or our worthiness of ourselves. And I think it's it's our job in, in terms of just growing and being the whole healthy person that we need to be is to recognize what we need to let go of and not have that shame and not have that guilt. Mm, I totally agree with that. And to take it back, maybe in a slightly different way to the other question that Sergey asked, I also read that, I don't know if it was just your father or was it the family, your mom and dad, Something that they taught you is in order to be successful, you have to have ownership, which of course translates to entrepreneurship Yes, naturally. Was that ingrained into you to a degree where you felt really confident to start your own thing basically right out of yes. college? Was it ever, were you ever told, you know what, take the safe route and get a job? Yeah, actually, no, I, I, I don't think that they necessarily expected me to start a business so soon. But I remember my mom saying to me, to own your independence, you have to own your own business. And I was so close to her growing up that, in fact, there was a period of time where my, my parents weren't getting along that well. So I actually shared a bedroom with my mom and my dad had a separate bedroom. And, um, you know, like like immigrant style, right? Yeah, <laughs> growing up in New York City. And I remembered her just her getting up every single day at like 4.30 in the morning. And I'd wake up. And by the time I was up, she was just like gone, you know. And she was always just going to the store, working, working, working. And just seeing that work ethic, I remember just dreaming about it just even being high school, like leaving high school early to start a business. And I just couldn't wait to do it. I went to an all-girls high school, an all-women's college, Smith College. But right after that, pretty much I had like one job. Even in that one job, I started something on the side. So I just could not wait to start something. It was in my blood. I had no fear in my 20s, like no fear at all. It's so funny because as now I'm turning 45 this year and I see myself have more fear actually in my later part of life. And I think a lot of that's just having more responsibility with being a parent and you know a lot more. There's also a lot more to lose. When you're young and you start a business when you're young, there is nothing to lose, right? right? There's only stuff to gain and only experience to be had. And you know how hard things actually are. Right, exactly. (laughs) Although I, I do hear though, and I am seeing that millennials today, because of social media and because of technology and how there's so many choices, there's so much information, Mm -hmm. you're almost paralyzed today as to like, oh, and what if I make the wrong decision? Because there is also this perfectionist thing that you can't 
fail. And so again, there's pros and cons to every generation that we're in. But with the generation I was in, you know, I wasn't clouded with all of that content and information. There's also a famous quote that you can only be what you see or you can't be what you can't see. And so for me, I saw my parents as entrepreneurs. I'm like, I'm going to be that. So then let's talk about how you went from just having a side hustle to then doing a business full time, because that's one of the hardest things for most first time entrepreneurs is to be able to sustain yourself, even pay your rent and food through your own business. So let's talk about how you thought of the idea and then how you made it self-sustaining. Yeah. So uh, I was at a dot-com company, money.net, and that was the first Silicon Alley boom, like early 2000s, before everything sort of bubbled and popped. But basically, there were a lot of dot-com parties and a buddy and I, you know, we saw that there was a lot of sponsorship money and I was in a business development sales role for this dot-com company. And I was like, let's start our own internet parties. I called them iLounge. I just started getting five to $10,000 sponsorships a month, asking brands, pitching brands, noticing who was showing up where. And I just started closing these sponsorship deals on the side. Mm. And it was actually good for the dot-com company that I was working for because it was a visibility for them because of my title. And then that led me into, uh, I met uh, Chris Hoffman at the time who had started the Shecky's Bar Guides. And then September 11th happened. And essentially from there, he had a book called Girl's Guide to New York Nightlife because they did, I don't know if you remember Shecky's Guides, but there was a Gat Restaurant Guides and there was Shecky's Bar Guides. So he started the Bar Guides. I was doing these parties and getting these sponsorships, and we decided to merge our efforts and really build Shecky's together. So I'm like maybe 26 at this point. Um, By the time I was 29, we were already a seven-figure business. So we were sort of at the right place at the right time capturing, I called it era of the 2000s, like, you know, that was the sex in the city, the girls just want to have fun, Charlie's Angels, chick flicks, chick literature. It was the fluffy era where women's value was placed on what they wore and who they were dating. (laughs) You know, it was sort of the antithesis of obviously what the last decade has been about, but that was that market. And so it was very quick success. But so my story into entrepreneurship, I always say that there's different kinds of entrepreneurship, right? I just started hustling Mm -hmm. and I was good at networking. I was good at asking brands and companies to give us funding for, you know, who we were reaching. That was pretty much what I was very good at. And I also had a real knack for creating content for a consumer base, right, which was women at the time. And so, you know, versus the kind of entrepreneur who's like creating the business plan and raising the capital or they're taking out their mortgage or, you know, there's so many types of entrepreneurship. And that's what I always say that you really got to be specific around as we're sharing advice and stories um, that there's a lot of different pathways to entrepreneurship. Well, you know, I, I would say that taking out a loan or, or even being able to raise money is not entrepreneurship we talk about on the show all the time because 99% of entrepreneurs never raise money from a professional investor. That's just the stat. So if anybody, and, and that's why we, we did a three-part, actually now four-part series called Fundraising 101 for people to talk about the realities of raising money from venture just because we work in it. But also we did an episode about how most entrepreneurs raise money and it's not that way. I mean, yes, it's either debt, but side hustles or just actually hustling for revenue in any way you can, even if it's ancillary revenue for your business, i.e. You, you expect to make money in other ways. That's what true entrepreneurship is. So it sounds like you guys were able to do that pretty quickly and you clearly had some skills that you were able to activate. Yes. Um, you were in sales, business development. Sergey and I were in sales also early on in our career. We, we recommend that as a skill to build up early on as well. Definitely. I, I always like, you know, instead of raising money, like make your money, <laughs> you know, and yeah. like focus your time because the amount of time it takes to raise money, I mean, you could be focusing on getting clients. And Can you give us an example of those early sponsorships that you got? Because five to ten thousand dollars sponsorship 
from the get-go is pretty impressive. Can you do you remember a time where you let's say went to a networking event and and pitched this to somebody or how you were able to close one of those deals? So that era was also just sort of unrealistic because that was that time where money was getting thrown around like crazy. And if any of you are like Gen Xers and and around my age, you remember like Bernardo's List and Cocktails with Courtney. And I mean, there were these, and that was just like New York scene. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the West Coast obviously scene as well. But um, I think I think that that was the time that, you know, where even today, even event sponsorships, because I've been in the event sponsorship world for a long time, like it's much harder today to get sponsorships to reach people in an audience than it was even just seven years ago mm. or five years ago. But yeah, I mean, that was the niche mm. at the time. Uh, and I was just, I was noticing what brands were showing up. And I think half the battle too was just being really assertive and being really practical. If you're going to try to convince somebody and ask somebody to fund you for something and just being really concise and clear and value packed with value and what you're going to get out of it and keeping it short and sweet and not an essay. I think reading people and how to communicate with them and how to show them value is just a huge skill to have. And that's always something, I guess that's always a tool that I've I've had or a skill that I've had. Do you think it's harder now just because there's so much noise? Yeah, I think people are pitched so often. I think that even if you want to network with somebody, let's just say you see somebody speak at an event or, you know, you read about somebody. I mean, I get tons of emails of just, hey, you know, I read, I heard, listened to your podcast or I read your book or I came to your conference. I've been following you for a long time. I'd love to get a coffee one day. Like, you know, I mean, it's like be specific, you know, like mm-hmm. be specific about your ask and, you know, read the your audience. You know, obviously, if they know enough about me, they must know that I have a busy schedule. And it's like, how do you, how do you, you have to have that common sense and that, and make it as realistic for that person to respond. Mm-hmm. So. So how do you, how are you specific or what advice would you give, let's say, to a young entrepreneur who's hosting her first event and she wants to line up a sponsor. She's got a hundred attendees lined up. It's next month and she needs to get a sponsor. How, what advice would you give her to be direct and be concise, let's say when doing cold outreach without being too salesy? Or if that's her concern, she doesn't want to be too salesy. She doesn't want to come off as that. How how does she make that ask? Yeah, I think that getting really clear about the mission of your event, who your audience is, are they at the event to gain an education around something? Like, what are they gaining out of that event? What is the value and the impact of what you're going to give to this audience? And then I think what brands, what companies want to align with that mission, who then will also partner with you to provide co-value in that offering and I think that that is really, that's critical. This is the mission. This is the impact of what, you know, my podcast is doing, what my event is doing, what this program is doing. This is who we're going to reach. This is how we're going to impact them. Do you want to be a part of that impact? Mm. And being as genuine as possible. Like, I love the word impact because I think at the end of the day, that's what matters the most. Mm. And today, when brands put up dollars, they want a financial ROI. They want to see money back. But you know, private sector companies and brands truly also do need, they can't just be about the bottom line. Right. Um, and eventually, you know, most consumers anyway, or most most entities want to partner or consume brands that actually, where they understand their values. And so, you know, people consume values today more than they consume those material products. And so I think that that is focusing on your impact and the impact ROI of what you're going to bring to that that company. Mm. And start small, you know, like me, like we'd love to build a partnership. Is that a possibility? And then, you know, start where, don't think of it, okay, this has to be the end all be all, but you're planting the seed hopefully for 
a long-term partnership. I think that those are two great takeaways. You know, you may have a big vision for what you're trying to accomplish, but it takes steps to get to that vision. So starting small is by no means a small act. It's, it has to be part of the process. And then the other thing that you said is give people answers, right? If you're going to approach somebody, you have to be ready to communicate the value and impact, of course, is a big part of that value. Because if you can give them that answer that they're looking for, uh, ahead of time, they're that much more likely to say yes. So you ran Shecky's, to continue with the story, yeah. for about 10 years. And I believe there was some kind of maybe disagreement in terms of the direction of the company yeah. with your partner. Wow, you really read up my bio, huh? <laughs> I know everything about you. <laughs> yeah, let's get to what I'm doing now. <laughs> and actually, that's exactly what I was going to get to. So clearly, it was a, a, a successful business. Uh, you, since you ran it for 10 years, you reached that success relatively quickly. You said it was a seven-figure business within three years. But there was a disagreement. You ended up moving on to your own Thing. So the next thing that you started, which morphed into She Summit, was mm-hmm. I guess a self-branded company, Claudia Chan, yeah. ClaudiaChan.com. Does that URL still exist? I'm assuming not anymore. Yeah, it okay. started first. I interviewed 200 women on ClaudiaChan.com, but it was all a launching pad for She Summit. I see. Okay, yeah. so uh, though, talk us through those early days. So basically, what I want to do is I want to pretend that you know I'm in the room with you and we're sharing an office, and it's the first day you're sitting down to work on your own thing. You no longer have a partner. You're working on your own thing. What are you going to do? I my mean, bed what? is right there. Your my kitchen's right. right there. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so maybe I'm not in the room. Uh, we're not sharing an <laughs> office. But, but you, you are working from home, and you're trying to figure out, what do I do? How do you even take the next step? Did you already have ideas for what you wanted to do at this point? Yeah, I think that, and this is so much in, you know, in my book and in what I preach today in the How We Rise message, is that everything happens for you, and that you know, up to this moment in your life, no matter how old you are, you know, visions are casted on us all the time. And I think that most people neglect those visions because they they say to themselves, well, that's just silly or, you know, that's just a crazy idea. But, you know, really, that's my first advice is really journal visions and ideas that come to you, mm. and especially when you're in a good place, like you're, you know, with friends or you're like moving, going somewhere, you know, I feel like that when you're in the flow, when you're in good energy, that's when, you know, really like a yoga class, you know, that's when Hmm. really good stuff comes to you. But for me, I just knew that it was a culmination of a lot of things, but I I had had a point where I I lacked, I had material financial success, but I lacked purpose and meaning. And I was really just sort of, my soul was not served. And a bunch of things happened. And I started learning about the status of women and girls in the world. And I just had this big aha around, you know, I'm going to like in the first three letters of she, Shecky's was she and then the of creating she global and she summit. And really, there were so many problems of, you know, what was happening to women and girls globally. And I'm like, and meanwhile, all of the women around me and I went to Smith College and Yale and great schools. I'm, a, I'm in Manhattan, all these affluent women. And when we talk, we, we literally talk about men. <laughs> we talk about you know, how happy we are and what we're struggling with. And and I'm like, wait a second. I was like, you know, what's like, there is, you know, sex trafficking and gender-based violence around the world and 4.2% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. I'm like, what is up? Like, why is it that me and, and almost becoming like an, a sociologist, uh, we're just like studying women. And, you know, why is it that our, you know, 
we're not talking about women's issues. And if women aren't talking about women's issues, like, of course, all these, there's massive gender gaps and atrocities happening everywhere. And so that was really the first era of She Summit and She Global was like getting mainstreaming women's empowerment, getting women to care about women's issues. And that it's not like the women's movement's not one movement. It's like tens and millions of issues. Like there's, what is your movement? Is it pay equity? Is it being a single mom? Is it girls' education? I mean, there's like millions of issues out mm. there, right? And so for me, like everybody we all have experienced something like, what issues do you want to get behind? So that was really the first era of the business and really taking my event planning skills. I'm like, okay, I'm instead, you know, I'm really good at events. I'm really good at getting sponsorships. I'm like, let me create an, a big accessible conference. It would stand for She Helps Empower, the She Summit, and get all the amazing people that I know, because you can't be what you can't see and sort of get their stories on stage. And so that, of course, is so mainstream today. But back in 2010, when I first had the idea, it was non-existent. Hmm. It was really just Fortune's Most Powerful Women's Conference. Like things were very exclusive or things were very inaccessible or it was like National Association of Business Women or it was like really suit wearing or pink, you know? Yeah. So it just wasn't you know, I wanted to sort of create the vogue of make women's empowerment really accessible and popular, which, you know, obviously I started June of 2012. That was the first She Summit. And, you know, Lean In came out 2013. Beyonce's a feminist. Malala's an international girl. I mean, literally the movement. I was there when the movement started. Mm. Many of the people that were on my stage the first year literally have gone on to create a massive companies, massive platforms, the co-founder of Refinery29 to like Girls Who Code founder Reshma Sajani. Like, so it's, I was really there, I feel like in the New York, I was part of the movement of really getting it going. Mm -hmm. There was a bit of a gap there because you said you started in 2010. The first summit was in 2010. 12. Yeah. So I ideated the idea. Like mm -hmm. the idea came to me in 2010, taking more and more time leaning into it, um, wrapped up Shecky's May of 2011, mm -hmm. and then built the team and launched one year later. I actually planned the launch of this one. I actually, at first, is <laughs> just like stumbling into it. Yeah. So since we have an event planning expert here, there's a lot of people that want to start conferences, but conferences can be very successful or very not profitable. Let's talk about the sequence of events of actually planning this. And I'd love to hear some specifics because there's this chicken and the egg problem whenever you're hosting any event of, well, I need attendees uh, and I need sponsors and I need speakers. So there's like these three things that you need. Which one do you do first? How many people are you trying to get? The specifics of even how much do you ask for a sponsor and how do you know how much to ask for? All these things seem like a little bit of a black box for somebody that's hosting their first event. Can you uncover a little bit of that for us and how that planning went for you? I know I just asked a of bunch of questions, yeah, but no, if you totally. can put yourself in that mindset. Basically that first year, yeah. And the question is basically, how do you, if you want to create an event business, how do you really get that going? Yeah, or really what you did back then. Mm -hmm. It's so funny today because today it's, you know, She Summit has been the core product of the company, of mm -hmm. She Global for the last seven years. But now I'm obviously in this leadership training world and the body of work around how we rise. So it's funny because I actually don't talk about the conference a lot, but I love also talking conference. So, you know, today conferences and events, I, I do feel like there is a trend where like from a business modeling standpoint and from especially when it comes to getting, again, those brand dollars and there are so many events out there with Eventbrite and, and various tools that it's almost had a backlash. Like event businesses are hard. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're not like I would say that if you are, you know, wanting to create an event business, um, don't make it about the event. Make it about the bigger meaning of who do you want to impact? I would say connect, educate, activate is our three pillars of She Summit. Um, and to me, in order to rise 
and leadership. Those are the three things like we have to build new connections or edit our connections and our community. We need to gain new knowledge and develop and grow. And we need to commit to action and activate. And so I think that, you know, for me, it is, let's just say you have a health and wellness company and you're a health and wellness coach or whether or not you are a technology, you know, you're a marketing agency, right? Like there's so many different kinds of businesses out there. I think to think of an event as a part of your strategy, you know, to convene your stakeholders, to provide further value, to get more sell-in. And so that's the first thing is like thinking about, oh, there's the event business where like my sole revenue model and my business model is an event company or a conference company versus, okay, I have an agency or I have a fashion brand or, you know, I'm doing something else. And, you know, I'm really leveraging events as a marketing vehicle. So I think that that's the first differentiation that I would want to make. And again, I think this goes back to, you know, try to stay really lean. Mm -hmm. It's really easy. First time conference planning or event planning, it can be just crazy overwhelming how expensive it can be. And then all of a sudden you've got big name speakers coming and then you don't want like, oh, then I've got to do lunch and I've got to have like better AV and I've got to have a video production. It's like planning a wedding, right? It Mm -hmm. just gets out of control. I actually have to be really cognizant of those things because I'm very focused on corporate America. And so, you know, the, the quality of everything that I do has to be really thoughtful and and where am I really investing, you know, the dollars versus like, okay, you know, the step and repeat needs to be a certain quality versus something else. So does that help in terms of answering the question? Yeah, well, I think it does definitely in terms of helping people understand the perspective of probably uh, prioritizing, let's say, activating their network or the assets they already can use to get people into a room and the reason for why they even want to put on an event. Because a lot of people have options these days. And I really think that it's such an easy habit to be like, oh, we're going to create these events and it's going to be a second revenue stream. And this is how much, you know, we're going to sell for tickets and we're going to get these sponsors. And all of a sudden it just becomes this Titanic Mm -hmm. and this this uh, black hole, basically. So so I would recommend that, you know, focus your core business on, you know, the core value, you know, your genius, like whatever value you're putting into the world, like focus on that and then think about having an event strategy I would not advise today to like, okay, unless unless this is really, really your background, right? Experiential marketing and, or you have something really unique and you want to create leadership conferences or something. But I would say for most people really think of having an event strategy as part of your programmatic strategy or like to supplement and to support the rest of the business. Um, just, and one more thing is, you know, Ariana Huffington, I know I'm good friends with her sister Agape. And um, when she wrote Thrive, her book on well-being, you know, she did a Thrive conference like two years in a row. And I know also Joanna Coles, when she was editor-in-chief of Cosmo magazine, they did a Cosmo conference. Like there was a period of time where women's conferences were like super trendy mm. and all of them did it for like one or two years and they stopped doing it because mm. literally it, it consumed the entire leadership team. Like Ariana was on the phone, you know, like talking to speakers, right? Because it's this physical event that just gets everybody stressed out. Mm. So I would say, you know, so just to show again, like two examples of just being super thoughtful about it. You just heard part one of our interview with Claudia Chan. Next week in part two, we're going to dive into how her new business was actually much more challenging to get off the ground than the original business, which seemingly had everything going its way. Claudia mentioned that they were at seven figures in revenue within just a few years. Well, the next time around, when she was in her 30s launching a new business, it wasn't as straightforward and in some ways, it took a lot more to persevere and actually get it to a point where it was a sustainable company. But of course, 
as an entrepreneur that never leaves something unfinished. She was able to grow it into a company that has now impacted tens of thousands of women. And you'll hear how she was able to identify even more interesting business opportunities and revenue opportunities as she grew her business over the last decade. Thanks for listening to The Mentors. If you enjoyed this episode, please go into your podcast listening app, click on share, and send it to just one friend that might find value from the lessons learned in today's interview or might get motivated by it. It would help them and it would help us uh, in spreading awareness about the show. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.